Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. When you lead from a base of expertise, your confidence and credibility are derived from your knowledge. People follow you as a result. However, when you take a stretch assignment and span outside of your comfort zone, leading requires a different approach, one of influence, inspiration, compromise, and courage. We are here to talk about how to take that next step and keep going. Now, here is your host, Wanda Wallace. Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. Today, we're going to talk about Game of Thrones. Now, I know that's an unusual topic this for this show, and I must admit from the outset that I am not a devotee of the show. But if you're like me, don't worry. We'll make sure you can follow the discussion today and understand the implications. So from a leadership perspective, the story is a bit fascinating, particularly the shifting alliances, the ups and downs of fortunes, the winners, the losers, and why people are followed at, at any given time. And as you're going to see, there are quite a few parallels in those examples with leadership in today's world. So my guest today, Bruce Craven is a member of the Columbia Business School Executive Education Faculty, and he serves as Program Director for the Advanced Management Program there, along with a bunch of custom executive education programs. He also teaches a very popular graduate business school elective called Leadership Through Fiction, where he emphasizes resilience and flexible thinking in his work with his senior executives around the globe. His newest book, Win or Die, The Leadership Secrets from Game of Thrones was published just this year, and that's what we're going to be talking about. And he's given a ton of leadership talks on this book for a variety of organizations. Now, that's not all that Bruce does. Red Dirt Press will publish his collection of poetry in the fall. And his feature script, film script, Sundown, is currently in pre-production. And he just published Fat Sofa and co-wrote the script for the film adaptation in 2001. So multi-talented from many perspectives. Bruce, welcome to the show. Wanda, what a lovely introduction. Thank you. Um, I think anyone who's been out there pushing it in the screenwriting world and the fiction writing world, you often feel as if you're, you know, struggling out kind of in the desert, and uh, it's nice to hear you sort of list the things I've been working on. I feel like I've been uh, more productive than I often feel on that front. Um, I'm really ple- pleased to be here. Out of the Comfort Zone is a wonderful title uh, for a show, and it's very apt for me because writing this book was very much uh, a challenge of stepping out of a comfort, comfort zone. I bet. Well, so is using Game of Thrones to talk about leadership a bit of out of the comfort zone. And I think we could say for Game of Thrones characters throughout the seasons, everybody was out of their comfort zone. So we're, we're in good company here. I, I have to start at the top. I know you use fiction in lots of different ways, but why did you choose Game of Thrones? Great question. I had been running my class, Leadership Through Fiction, for I don't know, maybe about three or four years and an editor actually contacted me. He saw the class, and he contacted me and said, would you like to take you know, that methodology and apply it to this hit show, Game of, Game of Thrones? Which at that point, I think had been, it was on its third season. I had watched an episode of it with my wife, and I liked it. You know, it took me back to um, you know, Lord of the Rings and, and all those kind of books that I grew up on. And I thought, yeah, no, we'll watch this show. And my wife very quickly said, we're not watching this. Um, and then when the editor came back with the suggestion that we do a project on it, 
uh, we started watching it, and my wife, in fact, became probably one of the biggest fans on the planet. She's read the books twice, and that's quite an effort because they're very long and demanding, although incredibly exciting and rewarding. And she was a source of guidance to me as I worked on the book. So basically, it was an idea brought to me, and, you know, it honestly, to get back to Out of the Comfort Zone, it made me nervous, you know. I thought, ah, oh, this is a, an intense narrative. There's an incredible array of characters. And if I'm going to do something, it's got to be something beyond the kind of, you know, witty sort of articles that are being written in the press. I've got to do something that's got some real depth to it. And what really motivated me was, you know, I've spent years, really 30 years with Columbia Business School, and I've benefited myself from listening to phenomenal professors and working with executives from around the world, and I thought, well, maybe I can, you know, bring these three things together, bring together what I've been teaching to my executive MBAs and MBAs, bring together the wisdom from other professors that I've benefited from and who I've seen impact leaders around the world, and put it through this lens of Game of Thrones and create something that's, you know, compelling and educational in a new and exciting way. I uh, can see, and judging by all the press that you've received and the number of speaking engagements you've gotten, clearly a lot of people think that you did a good job on this one. Before we get into dive into Game of Thrones, I have to ask one more question, which is why do you think fiction can teach us about leadership? Yeah. You know, I, I wrote a case, co-wrote a case for Columbia Business School about 11, 12 years ago. And, and it's a good case. You know, it gets used a lot. And as I was writing the case, it's on about a, the credit function of a building supply company, I kept wanting to bring in more of, you know, my, for lack of a better word, sort of skill as a, as a novelist and a poet. I wanted to bring in more description. I wanted, I, I realized partway through writing the case, and I, and I didn't do this, cases are a certain kind of thing, but I realized, God, it would be exciting if you could read novels and extrapolate from them powerful lessons, you know, as is done with the case method. I didn't know that there was a professor at that time at Harvard Business School named Joseph Badaracco who had start, started to do that. He'd been using fiction. I didn't know that. Uh, I pitched the idea for a number of years to Columbia, and at one point they agreed, and I had very little time to, <laughs> to plan the course, so I was just throwing together a lot of books that I thought would work. And my instinct was that people, through reading about these fictional characters and reading through their trials and tribulations, their challenges, um, in many cases their mistakes, people could see themselves and their own potential opportunities and their own potential challenges and be engaged in a really high level, you know, because, I mean, fiction writers, particularly really high-end, successful fiction writers that we would all turn to, you know, they're very good at their craft. And so I thought this would be an exciting way to get people thinking about their own challenges, thinking about their own opportunities, and doing it in a very, doing it kind of with the benefit of engaging with fascinating characters. All right. Well, I know, and I know having just published the my book, that people resonate with the stories. So that when you're introducing a concept, if there's a story about a person, usually, in my case, it's usually a real person, but you fictionalize it so that you're keeping confidence is appropriate. 
that that's what people remember. That's what they hold on to. So especially great novelists who develop rich characters that resonate with us as the human characters that we encounter in the world. I can see why that would work. Okay, so let's get on to Game of Thrones. But before we kind of dive into one of the key pieces I want to talk about on that one, do you want to just give us like a two-minute primer for anybody who's never watched the show? Yeah, definitely. Um, it's George R. R. Martin, the author, was a, a, a screenwriter and, and science fiction, epic fantasy novelist also, and a huge fan of history. So really, and this is true of, of much fiction, but it's certainly true of Game of Thrones, the, the fuel that these narratives are running on is the fuel of, of true history. Um, he particularly based some of the characters on the War of the Roses, um, England in, I think, the 1500s, changing, you know, names from, was it Lancaster to Lannister. Uh, and as he said, I really used history, and if, you know, the color was purple, I turned it up, I turned it to red, and then I dialed the whole thing up to 11, which I think was his way of saying, you know, I, I took history and then I just ramped it up. I would say much in the same way Shakespeare does, and, and made it very intense and compelling. The stakes, um, which of course was true in history too, but the stakes are very high. Um, all the characters have, you know, they have to commit. If they don't commit to something, they're probably going to die, and people that they love are probably going to die. And truthfully, even if they do commit, and even if they do bring their best self to this competitive world, it's very likely they may not survive. Um, I, I totally lost where you what the question was. Well, it was a bit of I mean, so that gives us a great understanding of what the background is about Game yeah, of Thrones. Right. Is there anything else we yeah, need to know? Um, yeah, I would say that there's um, there's two continents. There's Essos and there's Westeros. It's a land uh, where there's not you know gunpowder, so it's pre Pre-gunpowder, the, the, the fighting is primarily with, you know, swords and bows and arrows and that sort of thing. There are these, in Westeros, there are these sort of city-states, and at the beginning of the show, very early on, the king dies in mysterious circumstances, and these city-states start to, their leaders start to fight for, uh, you know, leadership of the continent, and a young girl who is was the daughter of a king that was um, killed in a coup is on the other continent of Essos and she really has nothing going for her in particular beyond her family name she's got no resources no real power and through the 10 seasons she makes her way into a position of extreme uh, power and returns in her attempt to take uh, the the throne. It's it's the Iron Throne. It was a throne made out of all of these swords welded together by one of the previous kings. And basically, the narrative is about everyone fighting to get this Iron Throne. And the young woman's name is Daenerys, Daenerys Targaryen. And early on, she says she is going to 
not stop the wheel that crushes the fragile and the vulnerable, the poor, the disenfranchised, but she's going to break the wheel. So she, she has a, a particular mission of rallying all of the enslaved people to her side, and that's how she builds an army. So you have this essentially war of all these different families trying to take control of the continent of Westeros. And I should say there's, there's, uh, there's dragons, um, there's a threat that is descending from the northern part of Westeros that is non-human and uh, terribly dangerous to humanity. George R. R. Martin said a lot of his thoughts were around um, global warming and risks to the environment when he created uh, an enemy known as the White Walkers, who are extremely ominous. Okay, great. All right, and before we get lost in all the characters and all the places and all the themes, one of your big themes about this is a lesson you call be a player, not a piece. So what do you mean by that? And tell me how that, how does that apply in this particular case? Yeah, this is something that I've used for many years at Columbia Business School. It's, it's this idea that it really kind of goes back to Viktor Frankl, um, Man's Search for Meaning, the idea that we always have choice, that even in the most dire of circumstances, he was in a concentration camp and he talked about how there were people, even in that constant life or death situation, who made the moral choice, they made the right choice. Um, I use it in a more lighthearted way often when I'm talking to uh, business executives and students. In fact, I'll use it tomorrow in a class I teach to these global executives um, to, to emphasize that we all have the power to confront adversity. And if we choose to accept that responsibility, if we choose to accept that opportunity, it doesn't mean our lives are going to be easy. I mean, our lives are going to be difficult, and yet we are taking responsibility to try to secure you know, the professional future, the, the life that we want for ourselves. And the, the flip side of being a player is this idea of, of being a victim, of, of saying, well, you know, the industry is too big, I can't compete, no wonder my company's having trouble, uh, you know, I don't want to step out of my comfort zone and get in some traumatic situation, the risk isn't worth it. And in Game of Thrones, there's a character named Sansa Stark, who is a young woman from the Winterfell, uh, from the Stark clan in the northern part of Westeros. And because of her family name, she is being sort of manipulated by a number of different people. And the f- much of the, of the story, she's in really horrific circumstances. But at one moment, she's been liberated by someone who appears to be an ally um, named Peter Baelish, and he tells her, you know, in life, you're either a player or a piece. And peace is equivalent to victim. You know, you're either making the moves on the game board or you are being moved. And she says to him, kind of acknowledges, yes, and I've been a piece. And he sort of says, look, you're young. It's, it's understandable, but you need to learn to be a player. So in that world of Game of Thrones, you certainly see a number of characters, including Sansa Stark, start taking responsibility for her future and making very hard, dangerous decisions. When I talk to executives or graduate business students, you know, I often use the lighthearted example of when you're at an airport 
and uh, you know suddenly your plane, the planes all get canceled. I've certainly, I live in California and I work in New York, so I've had a number of times where it's taken me, you know, 24 hours to get from New York to LA or where I found myself wake, waking up in Omaha. And you know, you'll see people that literally fall apart when this confronts them. Now, obviously, it's not comparable to to some of the really horrible things that confront people. It's it's more of a lighthearted example. But you'll also see people who take that moment and choose to be productive. They go find a new restaurant. They find a different part of the airport to get work done. They, and, and, and the point that I'm always emphasizing to, to students and executives is that we are in a constant dynamic where we have choice about how we're going to confront our challenges. And, and really, on a daily basis, we can choose to be a player. And if you do that, you're going to be far more proactive. You're going to turn opportunities in your direction. And you have a way of confronting, you know, what's difficult for you and what frightens you. You make a choice to, to handle it and take responsibility for it. Okay. So can you give me a quick example of a way in which Sansa or, Sansa or any one of the other characters um, made a choice that turned them more into a player than a piece? Yeah. Um, with Sansa, there's a moment where she's been uh, held captive by Ramsey Bolton, who's really a uh, horrific, horrific man, and she realizes that there's no way out. There's either death or she has to make a highly risky escape and try to make it back to, to find any of her family who survive. And so she leaps off a castle wall with uh, a young man named Theon Greyjoy, and it's, it's clear to her from that moment going forward, um, I don't want to give away too much of the plot, but from that moment going forward, it's clear that she realizes she can't abdicate her decisions to other people. And there's another related part to this that's interesting. When she's young, she is a huge fan of all the stories and the myths of, of you know, the wonderful ladies at court and the noble knights and the, and the heroism and the valor and as she goes through this very uh, traumatic period of time in King's Landing and, and in, in Westeros, she realizes that the songs and the stories are only a piece of the picture, and they're really not very often true. So she starts to recognize that humanity can be much more devious and much more um, self-involved, and she makes that choice that she's not going to let other people kind of tell her a pretty story and use her. She's going to make decisions for herself, and she becomes very motivated, like a lot of people in Game of Thrones, by protecting her family. Okay. Yeah, there's, um, you know, the, one of the things that I find frustrating about Game of Thrones is some of the sinister nature about this. And I guess we all have a personality, whether we choose to embrace the dark side of humanity or we choose to emphasize the light side of humanity. And I think what you're saying in this one is both are true. And that being a player is recognizing the truth in all sides. Is that a fair summary? Yeah, I think that's a very good assessment. I, in my MBA class, I, I assign um, the, the nonfiction um, autobiography of Frederick Douglass. Mm-hmm. who was you know, born a slave in the United States in the early 1800s, escaped slavery, um, becomes an advocate for women's right to vote, becomes an advocate for you know, the ending of slavery, is actually an advisor to President Lincoln during the Civil War. And I use him as a way to kind of get 
my students to recognize that we have a huge amount of, of opportunity if we take the responsibility to decide to make those hard choices and pursue something that really matters to us. And I think the good things in life, you know, they're not always, they're not always handed to us. They're not always easily available. I think you, you find them, whether it's professional, whether it's personal, your family life, your romance, you know, you find the good things by, by having courage. And player mode is, is kind of an ongoing way of reminding yourself to take the responsibility to be courageous. Yeah. Yeah. It's a topic we don't talk about, I think, enough in leadership. We used to, decades ago, it was a sort of central theme. But I know a number of CEOs that I've worked with says that there's always that moment in time where you have to decide if you're going to have the courage of your own convictions. And that's some of the same thing that you're saying here, that courage to make the hard choice, even if there are a lot of people around you saying it won't work. Yeah. But to go for it, and I, to place your bets. Absolutely. Yeah. And and often that me, that might even require leaving the organization you're with, or that might mm-hmm. require, uh, I know with my MBA students, one thing that comes up very quickly with all of them is is fear. That mm-hmm. if, you, if you put a stake in the ground and say, this is the career I'm going to pursue, or this is the goal that's important to me, you can easily be judged if you don't reach that goal. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And I think that's a very human, you know, it's a human reality. I've, it's very nice of you to list the, you know, projects that I've written that have come to fruition. And for each one of those, there were five to 10 others that didn't, you know, and you, yeah. you step out, you put your stake in the ground, your flag in the ground, you say, this is what I'm going to do. And it it does trigger some fear because you very likely are going to fail along that way at some point. Um, yeah. I encourage mean, courage, and, and I would even uh, uh, think of the term uh, grit, which is mm-hmm. in the book by Angela Duckworth, you know, and like yeah. she talks about how grit is this, this being committed to the long haul, you know, being in it for the long run. And uh, I know that those concepts, courage, grit, those are the things that are in my kind of internal dialogue on almost a daily basis. Yeah. Um, yeah. 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 You know, I, I will say this too, uh, Wanda, you know, because of this, this, you know, concept of getting out of your comfort zone, it's something that, you know, we kind of take for granted how much we like our comfort zone. <laughs> you know, I can be, at, I can be at home with my, with my kids, my wife watching, you know, an NBA basketball game and looking out at the desert and, you know, it's wonderful. Um, but we can't always be there. You know, we've got to often say it's time for me to go out and, and do the things that, that bring value. I know, um, you and I talked about this before briefly, but in the Native American tribes, the Plains Indians in the 1800s, when they were fighting the, the American, uh, European, you know, the cavalry who were, who were encroaching on the land that they considered to be theirs, they would often ride all the way up through gunfire and then slap a soldier with a piece of, of leather, uh, a coup, and they would kind of yell in their face and ride off, and they were basically showing that their value of courage was higher than their value of their own safety. You know, they, they could get close enough to kill a soldier and wouldn't even bother. They would just show, look, I'm, I'm, the point here is I'm more courageous than you. And I know sometimes when I have tough days and 
you know, I'm, I'm on the road and I'm missing my family and, you know, I'm not riding into battle on a horse. I'm not counting coup against a soldier trying to kill me. But I'm often reminding myself, hey, these are the times of cur- the moments of courage that help you, you know, build a career and help the people right. you love. Right. That's right. This week I was with a senior executive who was giving some advice to a group I was working with and his, in this particular case, statement was, whenever you get an opportunity, take it. Just take it. Yeah. And I think it's that same, his thing was, don't worry about it too much because if you do, you won't take it. You won't have the courage to go forward. And I'll also add, uh, you know, every senior executive I've ever interviewed in my life, thousands of them, everyone has failures, multiple failures, massive failures, huge failures, you know, sometimes because they just flat out made a mistake and sometimes the wrong yeah. place and wrong time. And that is part of the growth. Yeah. I mean, one of the things I I, I say to my my students and I say it because to them because I say it to myself is if you're not if you're not failing, you're not really trying hard enough. I mean, Mm -hmm. you've got to be going out there and pushing yourself. And and back to your earlier point of just try it. I was talking about this yesterday with a gentleman up here at the conference center. We were all out on a bike ride at the end of the day. And, you know, he's younger than me. And we were talking and I I said, um, you know, when I'm talking to my graduate students, and often I'm drawing on my life experience, you know, I'm 59 years old, I've, I've you know, lived more of life, and they're asking me things about, you know, what I, what I think is important. I say, listen, I, I don't regret mistakes. I don't regret failures. I don't regret, you know, as difficult as they've been, at times where I've laid in bed and just felt my body just chewed up by frustration at things that weren't working. I never regret that. I regret not trying certain things. And I regret not t- treating people right. I mean, those are the two, two areas where I felt regret, and I use that to try to remind myself to keep, keep trying, keep going for the, for the dream, and treat people well. Right. Okay, Bruce, this is a perfect moment to take a break. So my guest today is Bruce Craven, and we've been talking about Bruce's newest book, one of several, called Win or Die, The Leadership Secrets of Game of Thrones. Um, When we come back, we're going to talk about the sort of the nature of shifting alliances and how to think about some of those shifting alliances. I think some interesting insights in that one. But the thing from this particular show, this particular segment is player, not a piece, meaning having the courage to make a choice about the circumstances that are in front of you, to take that risk, to go for it. And, you know, yeah, you're afraid. And, yeah, it's hard to get out of your comfort zone. But being a player, not a victim. So, Bruce, we'll be right back. The business community's first choice in Internet talk radio. Voice America Business Network. If you want more information on the articles, books, coaching, and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. You're sure to find some helpful links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, Inc., helping organizations get it and keep it. 
This is Wanda Wallace, host of Out of the Comfort Zone. Do you find yourself in a role where your team knows more than you know? Are you struggling to see how you now add value? For years, I've coached leaders who have moved beyond the comfort zone of their expertise and have developed a methodology to help them make the leap and go on to do more. All of those tips are now packed into my new book, You Can't Know It All. Visit our website at leadership-forum.com or tune in to Out of the Comfort Zone for more insight. Tune in to the soul of enterprise, business in the knowledge economy with co-hosts Ron Baker and Ed Kless. Ron and Ed will show you how to recognize that wealth is created by intellectual capital. It's all in the possibilities that we can create and that are created for us. These possibilities are destined to be discovered by human imagination and through the service of others, creating a brighter future for all of us. The Soul of Enterprise is heard live every Friday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Business Channel and simulcast at the same time on the Voice America Variety Channel. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. Leading outside of your comfort zone is a delicate balance. You need new skills and new ways of working. To reach the program today, send an email to wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. That's wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone. Welcome back to the show. My guest today is Bruce Craven. Bruce is a member of the Columbia Business School Executive Education Faculty, among a host of other things. He's a writer of books on leadership as well as publishing his own poetry, a film script, um, and a script that has been adapted to film already. The book we're talking about today is Win or Die, Leadership Secrets from the Game of Thrones. And we've spent a little bit of time talking about why fiction counts why the characters there help us see ourselves and our opportunities. And we've been talking about one of the big themes from Game of Thrones, this notion of being a player, not a piece, making an active choice, committing to taking a course of action and making sometimes some very hard choices, which is about courage and the role of courage. Now, the thing I want to talk about now, though, Bruce, the thing that fascinates me about this book and this series is the nature of the shifting alliances. So people will be alliances at one moment in time and kind of like mortal enemies at another moment in time. So if, I, I was fascinated by that. And you have a lovely way of describing it by talking about the different ways in which people prioritize values. So tell me about that. Yeah, so... In my work in executive education, we uh, do a lot of work with values. We have people uh, get coached on their values. Uh, about 20 years ago, I was, in fact, the guinea pig uh, in this four-week advanced management program who was used as a test subject by a coach, and they uh, coached me on my values. So I came out of this workshop, and I went walking down by this lake up in upstate New York, And I had these values on a card in front of me. Uh, Energizing was one. Um, Empowering was one. Excitement was one. And at the top uh, was serenity. And I realized in the coaching session that a lot of the work I did, if it could lead me to a sense of achieving serenity, then I found the work fulfilling. And if it didn't or couldn't, then it really wasn't good work for me to take because I wasn't, in the end of the day, going to find it fulfilling. At that point, I had an aha moment, this is 20 years ago, and realized that both my novel writing, screenwriting, and poetry took me to serenity, 
I also realized that my work in executive education could take me to serenity if I got more involved in teaching. So the point is, with one afternoon of coaching, I suddenly made a, not suddenly, within about four months, made a big decision to pursue a different part of my career, which is, in fact, the main part of my career in the, in the ensuing 20 years. Um, so these values can guide us. Mm-hmm. Uh, just another note on that. I, was, uh, I had a colleague who was suggesting possibly throwing my hat in the ring for a different job at Columbia Business School. And my wife thought that might be an interesting job for me to take. And I knew it wouldn't fulfill my values. So I knew even though it was a high status job, good compensation, lots of people would have fought to get it, it wasn't a job for me. So right. our values can be a way of, of leading ourselves through difficult times. In Game of Thrones, when the story, when the narrative opens, um, the king has traveled with his entourage, King Robert, up from King's Landing, which is this beautiful kind of capital city, up to this cold land uh, in the city-state known as Winterfell. And he's gone up to ask his former uh, war buddy, Ned Stark, to come down to King's Landing and serve at, in a role called Hand of the King, which is sort of like a COO, you know. Basically, he says to Ned, you know, I need you to come down here and do all the dull, boring stuff that I don't want to do. Uh, he says it in a much more ribald and uh, wrong <laughs> way. But that, that's basically the message, right? And... Uh, Ned, you know, has a lot of good reasons to not go, but at the end of the day, he makes the choice because for Ned, his top value is duty. You know, he wants to do the right thing, and when he realizes the king's life could be in danger, when he realizes the king needs him, it's very hard for him to not make that choice to go to King's Landing, even though it puts him and his family at risk. You know, I I see Ned's values, if you, we keep our values in a hierarchy, so there's, you know, there's an order. So the top one is duty then honor, then courage, then family. Now, if Ned's top value was family, he would very likely not have made the decision to go to King's Landing because he would have felt his responsibility, and it's a very valid thought, he would have felt his responsibility was to stay in the north in Winterfell, protect his family, and protect uh, the northern border. But he accepts this request from the king, And I was going to get to this other point. The king also has the value of courage, but the king has the value of courage at the top of his hierarchy. So the king is far more driven by trying to prove his courage, really in somewhat meaningless ways, hunting wild animals, getting in fights with various knights. He doesn't prioritize leadership. And what happens and can often happen in our professional lives, is these two people with very good uh, will to each other and great histories together and both in positions of power um, get into a leadership argument because they're each responding to their own values and they haven't done a good job of communicating with each other. And this argument that they get into puts them both in very uh, vulnerable situations to their enemies. You can see that because you see in the dire circumstances of cases like Game of Thrones or in a crisis for an organization or in shifting leadership or shifting marketplace dynamics, all sorts of things that would drive in an organization, that you can't get every one of your values adhered to. So you go with the one that's yeah. the most important. That's what pushes your decision in those tough moments. And then people will make different decisions. 
And what's interesting, and then not understand it, what's interesting is I also think that's true of trust. I think that mm-hmm. when we trust people, we have different priorities of what counts most importantly to me as a signal of trust versus what counts to somebody else as a signal right. of trust. And we get you know great relationships then go awry for exactly that same reason. Right. And, and it really, in both cases, I would say, it often comes down to taking the time to try to communicate explicitly and be very clear about what's important to you and be receptive to what's important to the other person. Um, that would have, that kind of conversation, which was very out of character for Ned Stark or King Robert, could have helped them navigate some of that confusion. I know in my own professional life, um, and I'm sure this is true for anyone listening, probably more true, you know, we get so exhausted and we're so, uh, you know, driven by these all-consuming obligations that it's hard to take that moment and step back and look at a colleague of yours and remember that he or she, uh, you know, has earned your trust. And that you need to give your trust back to them. You know, it's, it's hard to remind, we need to remind ourselves often how much the people in our lives have done for us so that we can then bring, you know, empathy, trust, and respect back to them when the pressure is really on. Mm. I think that's true because we do tend to forget. I forget what I've done, let alone what somebody else has yeah. done for me. Okay. Now, are there other I, I, lessons? You know we, oh. Yeah, go ahead. I was just, just going to say, I remember about eight years ago turning to one of my colleagues, you know, in the middle of running a program, and I, I lost my temper about something, and, and he calmly pointed out all of the ways he had shown his faith in me. Mm-hmm. And it was a really, well, I shouldn't say he calmly pointed it out. He pointed it out with a little bit of, a little bit of emotion. But it was a great gift because, you know, he, he could have just held it in. He could have you know, judged me and walked away, but he was incredibly frank with me. And in all the years that we've worked together since then, I've never forgot that moment that he basically reminded me of everything he'd done for me. And not in a, not in a holier than that way, but in a way of just trying to build that bridge between us so we'd be able to have that trust when the pressure was on. Right. Absolutely. Are there other lessons from the alliances or the shifting alliances that we should pay attention to? You've talked about this notion of the values hierarchy and being able to be explicit with each other about the order of our values and therefore what's going to drive a tough yeah. decision. Anything else? Well, one moment that I, you know, that it, where the title of the book comes from, Win or Die, is when Ned Stark uh, has information that's, that's inflammatory and uh, would be very um, dangerous to Queen Cersei, and he approaches her and he reveals this information to her. And the reason he does it is because he makes assumptions about her values. He assumes that her top value is probably her family. He assumes that being a woman in that you know fictional world, she will probably grab her children and race out of the kingdom to avoid the wrath of her husband, the King Robert. Mm-hmm. And we, we can make judgments about, about competitors' values and put ourselves in vulnerable positions, and that's exactly what Ned does. I mean, had he handled it with a little more caution, he might have been able to elicit a better understanding of this enemy, the queen. And instead, he 
reveals everything he knows to her, makes assumptions about how she's going to behave, and her top values are superiority, power, courage, and then family. So she's not grabbing her kids and running away. She, in fact, says to him, what about my wrath? You know, she goes, you were saying I should be scared of my husband? What about my wrath? And, you know, he pays a high price for misjudging her values. Um, I would also say, and values, another Game of Thrones relationship that's fascinating to me is Brienne of Tarth, who is a woman who desires to be a knight, and in a world where all women are judged basically on their, on their, you know, femininity and their, and their, you know, status and their, and their traditional beauty. And Brienne of Tarth wants to be a warrior. And she carries the values of knighthood deep in her soul, and she acts with them even though no one has acknowledged that she even has the right to be a knight. So she's decided, she's put that stake in the ground, I'm going to be a knight. And she puts up with a massive amount of, of verbal and even physical abuse from people who don't want to allow her to make that claim. And, you know, we can, be- we can believe that in this epic fantasy world set off in some distant time, but I think we see that in our, in our own world where often, you know, you've got to make a decision on your values and you've got to put that stake in the ground and you've got to commit to the person you want to be even if everyone around you doesn't instantly applaud. Um, and at one point... Brienne is taking uh, Jamie Lannister, he's a prisoner, and she is taking him back uh, to the Queen, and they are caught by this brutal gang of, of, of thugs, warriors. And the long and short of it is that these two people, Jamie um, and Brienne, really learn to respect each other. Jamie learns to kind of go against all of his biases and his his bad sort of perceptions of women to recognize that Brienne has the values that he, he respects. I think it's a very moving moment in the show. Right. I love it. I love it. So this all just sort of says, you know, some clarity about our own values and particularly the hierarchy of our values as leaders is a really important quality to allow us to figure out where to make alliances how to understand the shifting nature of people's decisions, particularly in tough, tough times, and where to go from there. Fascinating. Yeah, and I think so, another, a, another piece to that that I, I see a lot of in Game of Thrones is this idea from Daniel Goleman from 25 years ago of emotional intelligence. Mm-hmm. And you see that a lot of the characters in Game of Thrones exemplify the four categories of emotional intelligence are self-awareness, which is like understanding your reactions and your tendencies, self-management, putting your momentary needs on hold for a bigger goal, social awareness, so the ability to pick up on emotions and other people and understand what's going on with them, and then relationship management, this ability to use your awareness of your emotions and someone else's emotions to build um, successful interactions. And I remember when this book came out in the 90s, and I was in the world of executive education then, and it was, it was fascinating to me because you could see how certain people could succeed even though they didn't seem to necessarily always be the smartest or always the most skilled, and there was no real lens to kind of grasp how they were doing it. And as 
EQ became sort of more of a way to observe people and more of a way people could lead themselves, it's very clear to me in the world that I'm in, I mean, I'm right now at a four-week senior leadership camp, you see that the people that continually find their way forward against adversity and find ways to, you know, leverage their values and respect the values of other people, um, people who, who manage to stay almost continuously in player mode, they almost always have high EQ. You know, they're aware of themselves. They manage themselves. I mean, when I talk to my business students, my MBA students, I'm like, listen, man, self-management, that's a, that's a daily job. You know, that's not something you're born with. That's something you have to build. And then this social awareness, building, understanding what's driving other people um, and building relationships with them. And, and you see that all through Game of Thrones. I mean, Tyrion, we'd be, uh, it, it wouldn't be right for us not to at least mention Tyrion Lannister before we're done with our talk. But Tyrion is, you know, a, a, a small man in stature. He's from a very powerful family, the Lannisters. He presents himself uh, from the beginning as sort of a, a lecher and a, and a drunk, although he's really quite intellectual and he really has a lot of emotional intelligence. He um, tries, you know, really heroically to win the trust and the respect of his family. His, his sister is the queen, Queen Cersei. His father is a man named Tywin, and uh, Jamie Lannister, who I just mentioned, is his warrior brother. He tries to win their respect, and in terms of his father and his sister, he fails. It's, it's never going to happen. Um, and then he ends up going across the ocean and eventually makes his way to Daenerys, who we started talking about at the beginning, the Mother of Dragons. And he becomes, uh, you know, he advocates for her and be, tries to, to support her run in leadership. But the point is with Tyrion, he's a guy who doesn't have great warrior skill in a land where that's needed. He, he does okay, but, but he understands himself and he understands other people and he's very good at, maybe not so good at managing himself early on, but he's very good at building relationships with other people. Initially, he uses his family's wealth and by the time he meets uh, the mother of dragons, Daenerys, um, in the city of Marine, he's very good at, at kind of acknowledging her power and yet letting her know that he has something based on his experience with the politics of King's Landing. He has something to offer her. So all through the narrative, you see Tyrion operate with EQ and you see his EQ develop. Okay, great. I see now why you enjoy so much using fiction as a way to bring some of these concepts alive because you have a character there where you can like or hate or relate to or whatever, but you sort of see the progression of that character and the lesson comes out of it from, from that one. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, you know, we're just a few minutes before we're going to close, not too many, we've got about five or 10 minutes. If you had one other major insight from the Game of Thrones series, what would that one be that you'd like to offer? I guess I'll put two things out there. I, I, one of them is I think, and I think, you know, this is probably often true in life as well as it's true in fiction, but in Game of Thrones, the, the characters that find really the most resilience and the greatest level of courage and who in most cases survive are the people that are really driven by caring about others. Um, there's a young boy in the Stark family named Bran Stark who's, who's paralyzed. 
and he has uh, his his allies, his his colleagues, drag him north of this 700-foot ice wall into this land of incredible danger because he believes it's his duty to go north of the wall and, and learn more about the threats that face humanity. And you could go down through every character that survives. They have this... Um, they find their courage is strengthened by the fact that it's driven by a love for other people. John mm-hmm. Stark is assassinated by his own people. He's brought back from the dead, and he wants to give up. He says, look, my own, my own people knifed me in the heart. You know, and the Onion Knight, who's a wonderful character in the story, says, you know, you, you just keep cleaning up the shit. You know, that's what you do. You go and you put up with it and you keep being a leader, basically, and dealing with all, the, all that's difficult. And John's really on the fence. I mean, he doesn't want to do it. But when he realizes some of his siblings are alive, all the courage comes back to him. And I think that's something we can all use to motivate ourselves is remind ourselves when we're under times of great difficulty how much we're able to then help and offer, you know, resources and our wisdom and our support to the people we love. The, the other thing I would, I would mention before we're done, uh, and again, I don't want to give away too much because um, I think it's a fascinating show and, and wonderful books, and I would hope that anyone who's managed to listen this far would uh, you know, give, give both of those a try. But Daenerys, the mother of dragons, has a very strong value in, in freedom, and I think it's, it's very much about offering freedom to other people. And at a certain point, she suffers uh, the loss of a great friend and a great ally and a great advocate. And she really becomes derailed. And this, again, gets back to emotional intelligence. I think we all have to really stay attentive to ourselves, to not let ourselves get derailed when we're, when we're distraught or when we're exhausted or when we feel like we've faced too much. Um, and the mother of dragons, Daenerys, is this wonderful, you know, image of someone who has fought so successfully to try to heal the world, um, and then faces a real crisis when she loses control of, of the value or loses her focus on the value that's driven her. So I, I, I would kind of my takeaway from that is just that, that we always we might fight for our career, you know, for 5, 10, 15, 20 years, and we still have to stay attentive to manage ourselves and lead ourselves and build good relationships with other people and not take any of that for granted and not lose ourselves through kind of emotional derailment. That's, yeah, yeah, we all see that, you know, with various crises that come in life and particularly in career when there's a big setback or a big disappointment. I see this in senior leaders that I work so fascinating to me that I will know them as younger leaders and would say they're really on a great path. They really understand their values. They're going in the right direction. It's going to be, you know, they're going to be a great leader. And I meet them five years later and wonder what on earth happened because they've become a different creature Um, And it's like they've lost those values that they used to hold. And I think often because they get so distressed about the things they encounter along the way, politics, setbacks, disappointments, whatever the heck it is, they just get disappointed and they lose it. Yeah. 
Yeah, and it's, I mean, I've seen it too. I've seen it in other people, and I've, and I've seen people that have resisted it. Um, and I know myself well enough to know, I mean, I think it's helpful to, to, know, our, to know our flaws, you know, our vulnerabilities, to acknowledge where we require extra leadership of ourselves. Um, and maybe that's one of the things, if you live your life with a certain level of introspection, maybe that's one of the things that comes with age. But, but I think I even had access to that when I was younger, and yet at times I wasn't aware of how important it was to manage myself. Um, now I'm very aware of it because I just understand how easy it is for any you know, good-hearted, well-intentioned leader uh, to stumble. And the more wisdom we have about ourselves and the world around us, the more wisdom we can bring to bear when we're having a hard day. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So part of that being able to be resilient and to maintain your courage is keeping front and center what your value really is and looking after yourself, making sure that you've done the things that you need to do, the TP focused and going forward. Is that a good time? Any other advice on yeah. this one for resilience? Um, I, I, you might have said this. I, I think it's really important to realize that the things you're fighting for are the things you're yeah. fighting for are are challenging. You know, I mean, I've been a number of times incredibly close to having a movie financed and then had money slipped away. I've been incredibly close to having books published. I've been, you know, and and everyone's got these examples of things. If you fight hard you're going to have moments where it all evaporates at your fingertips. And I think those are great moments to acknowledge that you've set your goals high and, and that's the way life is. And you need to, you know, that's when you operate with grit. That's when you take the long view and you say, okay, you know, this may be a hard day right now that we're facing um, to your team, but we're going to get there. Um, and then when you do get there, it's an amazing feeling when you've achieved something that you always dreamed of achieving. You know, there's nothing like that. Um, yeah. A colleague, of mine, a colleague of mine always makes the point, when you've hit that moment of achievement, celebrate it. Yeah. Celebrate yeah. it. And then, and then move on and find another goal because he makes right. a very persuasive argument. It's my colleague Paul Ingram here at the Advanced Management Program. He makes a very persuasive argument that our happiness – is, is supported by having ambitious goals. It's yeah. not sitting okay. on the sofa in our comfort zone that brings us happiness. It's getting out the door and bringing courage to the, to the battle and fighting for what we care about. Great. Fabulous. Bruce, what a fascinating discussion. So my guest today is Bruce Craven. He's a member of the Columbia Business School Executive Education Faculty, and he serves as Program Director on Advanced Management Program there, a program he's running right at the moment. He teaches this popular business class called Leadership Through Fiction, and it's through that effort that his newest book, Win or Die, Leadership Secrets from the Games of Thrones, has come about. I think if I look across all of this, I think there's a lot of themes in this one, but the one that still fascinates me the most is this recognition that we all have value values and that they exist in a hierarchy and that while I may share values with you, I may not share the same hierarchical ranking. So in tough times, that means we're going to make different decisions. So that means we have to talk about it. We have to understand it. Otherwise, we break relationships. We break alliances. We get disappointed, disillusioned, and we lose friendships and trust. Bruce, pleasure having you on the show. Thank you so much, Wanda. This has been wonderful for me. So I really appreciate the invitation and the time together. 
Anytime. Anytime. And join us next week for another episode in Getting Out of Your Comfort Zone. Thank you for joining us today. Tune in for another edition next week with Dr. Wanda Wallace on the Voice America Business Channel. Reach outside your comfort zone this week. Thank you.